Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Monday. Uh, we have a very solemn and a somber show today to cover the Israel, uh, what's going on in Israel and Palestine, Gaza. What do we have today? Indeed we do. We're, we're looking to cover this from all angles this morning. Um, you know, I really encourage you, if you can, to watch this show or listen to this show as a whole. We're going to bring you through the very latest, as best as we know, of what is going on on the ground right now after those horrific Hamas attacks on Israeli citizens. Um, we're also going to bring you into, you know, what led up to this moment, uh, some of the history that brought us here so that everybody has a bit of a fuller picture, fuller context. And we're going to bring in some experts to understand the Israeli domestic political situation, how that might impact their reaction moving forward. And also um, experts, uh, Dr. Parsi, who we've had on the show many times before, to help understand the geopolitics of this situation and what it might mean for the broader world, which is very significant as well. Of course. So, yeah, as I said, uh, we, we would really encourage people to either listen to this in full. Obviously, we put it out full uh, to be able to watch for our premium subscribers, uh, both on Spotify and on YouTube. Um, uh, but you can also listen to it for free as a podcast as well. Well, of course, we'll still post the clips in order to keep everybody updated, you know, as soon as possible. But if you are able to, I genuinely would recommend listening to it in full. We're going to start with the very, very latest as of this morning, um, around 7.30 Eastern time, just so everybody understands in case anything happens after this. What do we have right now? That's right. So as of this morning, we have a little bit of a glimpse at what the Israeli reaction might be as that's starting to take shape, both the size, scope, and um, shall I say brutality of it. We have a spokesperson from the IDF announcing 100,000 Israeli troops have been called up. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. That's the situation now. We have mobilized, we have called up 
approximately 100,000 Israeli troops. They are now organizing and preparing to launch an attack at Hamas in Gaza. And as we speak, we are also striking their military targets inside the Gaza Strip. And uh, so far, we have been able to kill more than 400 terrorists. So we know as of this morning, um, some of the targets that have been hit within Gaza include uh, a mosque that was in a, a densely populated part of the Gaza Strip. Of course, Gaza is some of the most yep. densely populated um, places, one of the most densely populated places on Earth. There was also a strike of a marketplace. Um, a number of apartment buildings and other targets have also been leveled based on what we know this morning. In addition, put this up on the screen, um, they have announced, as Israel's defense minister announced, that Gaza is going to be put under a complete siege. Now, Gaza has already been under a brutal blockade now for 16 years, which has caused um, you know, massive problems in terms of access to, to food, water, basic supplies, poverty rate, uh, unemployment rate, etc. This, though, goes much further. Mm -hmm. um, the defense minister saying specifically, no electricity, no food, no water, and no fuel as Israel begins their response to those horrific attacks, Agar. Yes, that's right. I'll read the full quote here. He says, uh, quote, um, that he's got no uh, electricity, no food, no fuel, quote, we are fighting human animals and we will act accordingly. So all of this is almost 48 hours or so um, in response to the attacks. And what we thought we would do is for anybody who wants like a fulsome picture of it is just put together some of the most shocking moments. So we go ahead and start playing them. Everything began to mount um, over on Friday and on Saturday during uh, ho the holidays, actually, inside of Israel. And what people can see here are thousands of rockets that were initially launched from Gaza towards Israel. That was kind of the prelude to what Crystal eventually turned into, one of the most shocking attacks um, that we have seen in modern history because of the size and the scope of Israel's defense that has justified so much of the security state there. Like, for example, when you know those who are watching right now, you can see guys literally in the middle of the street, tanks and things getting swarmed. And then there's also been a lot of attention around the incomplete inability for Israel to thwart attacks crystal by air and land and sea with multiple cities that were completely overrun, infiltrated, and hundreds and hundreds of civilians um, who were shot dead or in some cases were also kidnapped. We'll bring you the latest on that. This is one of the craziest ones to me, Crystal, is them uh, actually demolishing the barrier, the perimeter wall, which was long vaunted as one of the most important things in all of Israel. You know, the high-tech perimeter That's border right. wall with all these elect, uh, all these sensors. Here we have like burned-out cars um, and other areas from the music festival. So, so the, you know, the, the moments in all this were absolutely shocking and immediately invited um, some Israeli responses people can see on the screen in front yeah, of us. And yeah, and actually what we're watching right there is the Israel uh, Israel's retaliation in Gaza City leveling that apartment building there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, as you said, Sagar, and this was timed to uh, roughly correspond with the 50-year anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, um, which was another shocking surprise attack. Um, where Israel initially struggled to repel a coalition of Arab states. Um, that uh, war looms very large in terms of Israeli national consciousness and has been used to help justify this buildup of the mass yes. security state and the surveillance state. And, um, you know, part of what was so shocking here is there, I think, had developed a sense of comfort and security and, in a sense, complacency while the Israeli domestic population was protesting and fighting yes. over Netanyahu's, um, you know, attacks on the independent judiciary there. So that's part of the backdrop that we'll get into as well.
The other piece of this attack, which did directly target um, Israeli civilians, was a uh, significant program of hostage taking. Yeah. So we don't know the exact numbers yet. Israel doesn't know the exact numbers yet, but you're viewing some of the videos um, of hostages being taken by Hamas militants. The latest numbers I saw are somewhere around 150 known hostages. You can see, you know, women, elderly, children, all targeted. Um, there are also reports that Americans may be among those hostages. Um, we can actually put that up on the screen. Still a question, still unconfirmed whether or not Americans are among the hostages taken here. This is a very emotional issue, not only for Israel, obviously also for the U.S., um, and really complicates what the Israeli response can be. Because if you have potentially hundreds of Israeli hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza, makes it much more difficult to respond um, because you have an Israeli domestic population which would be very concerned about the well-being and safety of these hostages, understandably. And of course, their families are sick with worry about what is gonna happen to them and yeah. their fate. Yeah, exactly right. And we, have an exact, we don't have an exact figure here on the death toll so far, but it's already horrific in terms of the human cost. So let's put this up there on the screen. These were updated as of this morning. We know about 700 Israelis have been killed. Um, that is including civilian and IDF uh, members, 2,300 have been injured. On the Gaza side, we have 493 killed so far, 2,751 um, who have been injured. We don't have a breakdown within either of those figures of both IDF and civilian. Um, and same thing on Hamas militant or whatever, Hamas member um, and uh, actual like citizens of Gaza. But I think that what really we can try and underscore is the shocking nature of the attack because as you said, the modern foundation of the Israeli state is that we will keep you safe. This is already the single largest loss of life in a single day in Israeli history. So this will loom large now for a long time, but will probably loom even larger then not only just the horrific figures, was the ability to have an incursion directly into major Israeli cities. We have a map that we can go ahead and put there up on the screen um, just so people can get a little bit of an idea. I mean, the perimeter around Gaza was effectively useless here. You can see how Hamas was able to go into multiple major populated areas all in southern Israel that all surround the Gaza Strip and not just ones directly across the perimeter, but also, I mean, you know, several miles into Israeli territory and they were able to terrorize, to shoot, to kidnap uh, many people who were inside of that. They also, their rocket ability is one which has been posing some major tests for the Iron Dome. If we wanna go and put the next one um, that is up there, you can see that rockets were launched from Gaza all the way up to Tel Aviv, to the capital. One of the videos that we showed was Ben Gurion National International Airport, which is a major airport inside of Israel, which had to shut down and passengers actually were on the tarmac. Rocket strikes all the way up and down the capital, major cities like Ashdod. We also had, um, uh, we also had attacks like towards Jerusalem where Iron Dome um, was activated. So thousands and thousands of rockets um, that had been launched there. There's another map um, that we can show up there. This is from the retaliation so far by Israel, majorly in Gaza City. Um, as Crystal said though, it is difficult, I think for people who are not familiar with this, to understand Gaza's dense population. 
Gaza is the third most densely populated place on earth. There are 2.2 million people who live in this tiny strip. And honestly, if you haven't seen it with your own eyes, it is shocking. Um, and I, I never got to go inside Gaza. I can only see like, quote unquote, into Gaza. But I mean, this is like Tokyo level of population yeah. density, which is, um, it c comes through a bit in the, in the videos and all of that. But that's why, you know, every, basically any time a munition strikes within there, there's just going to be like a hundred civilians everywhere, which Hamas uses to its effect. And also, of course, you know, it's going to invite criticism on the Israeli response. It's just a, it's a nightmare situation. Well, uh, when you right put, now. I mean, yeah. again, this, uh, Gaza has been under siege for 16 years yes. and it has completely immiserated the population. Their unemployment rate is 50%. Um, they used to have a vibrant manufacturing sector, including textiles yep. that has completely fallen apart. Um, even their ability to, to fish uh, has been significantly curtailed because there's also a naval blockade. Egypt, by the way, uh, shares a border with Gaza. They also participate in this blockade. Their living conditions have continued to deteriorate. There's massive issues in terms of their infrastructure, their ability to have clean water. Mm -hmm. um, they have one power plant within the territory of Gaza that's able to provide a few hours of electricity a day. Um, so when Israel is cutting off now, going even further than their typical blockade, cutting off electricity, water, food, fuel. I mean, you can't describe this as anything other than a complete siege and also collective punishment. So that is the state of affairs as far as we know in terms of the Israeli response. You know, there's also a lot of questions. We're going to get into this with Dr. Parsi about whether Iran was involved. Yes. There's some reporting suggesting that they were. Hamas is actually saying yeah, they were they, involved. They went on the record. They're like, yeah, the Iranians helped us. Iran yeah. is saying, no, we didn't. Yeah. Interestingly, the U.S. intelligence community yes. is saying they don't have any evidence that Iran was involved. But as we think of the broader geopolitical implications here, obviously Iran and Israel, no great friends. Nope. Um, Israel long been very hawkish towards Iran. And um, you already have voices here in the U.S. on both the Democratic and the Republican side effectively calling for war with Iran, if these reports are true, that they were involved in helping to plan this. But, you know, Sagar, you mentioned this, and yeah. I don't think that it can possibly be overstated. The failure on all levels here in terms of anticipating what was a very sophisticated attack, which for sure took months, if not years, to oh, plan. Yeah, multi-year, I think. So no intelligence indicating the size and scope of this attack. In fact, all of the commentary from both U.S. and Israeli officials recently was, we don't think that Hamas wants a full-scale mm -hmm. war. You know, they were sort of floating these additional, we'll give you some additional worker permits so that more of your citizens can come over and work in Israel. I mean, their movement is so confined that even just to get a pass to work in Israel yes. is, you know, a Herculean task, let alone to seek medical care, let alone to travel anywhere, including the West Bank. Um, so there was a, a sense of real complacency. And um, you had all of this deal-making going on with the Abraham Accords under Trump. And with this new attempt to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel that were going on, that's another key piece of this because, um, you know, the Palestinians were not happy with this direction. And all of that deal making, which imagine this quote unquote new Middle East, just sort of ignored the fact yes. that you continue to have this, you know, brutal apartheid situation, citizens under occupation in Gaza, two million under these brutal blockade conditions. They just wanted to sort of pretend that didn't exist and invisibilize it. 
And that is no longer going to be possible. No, it's, it's completely impossible. The living symbol of this is going to be this music festival where you can see here people were having a good time, but then in the background you can see little clouds of pop, either missiles, smoke, and you know there were also paragliders uh, that were eventually came in. And then this was completely invaded by these Hamas militants who ended up kidnapping, raping, and killing many of the actual attendants. And you could see them absolutely just fleeing for their lives. It was just broken yesterday that 236 mm. bodies were actually found um, in, a, in a collective pile altogether. So this is, you know, gives you uh, reminiscent of the, the uh, Paris attack at the Bataclan um, by ISIS. So you know that is going to be the most one of the most searing elements. And it, it really just represents uh, the absolute failure on the part of the Israeli state. And we're gonna get into a lot of that later with Ken Roth and with others, but the social contract within Israel was always like, okay, you know, if you haven't been there before, you can't even go into a mall without being wanted, you know, for a suicide vest. Like every single person, the security is, in, it is unlike anything I have ever experienced anywhere on the globe. And the justification is, we're gonna keep you safe. They're like, yeah, you know why we do that? Because we haven't had a terrorist attack or a suicide bombing or whatever in 10 years. That is over now. Um, and that, when you have that social fabric break, I mean, this is a country with mandatory military service. People there are very civically engaged. So there, I think, is gonna be a massive political backlash, which we're gonna talk about with Ken Roth as to how the hell something like this could happen. But an intelligence failure on every single level, you know, from the US, from Israel, even on Iran, you know, even if uh, they were, you know, involved or, or not, we're going to talk about that with Dr. Parsi, but, you know, allegedly we spend all this money, you know, spying on all these people. And Edward Snowden made a great point. Netanyahu and the Israeli government have pioneered the most invasive spyware like known to man. Yeah. And uh, where, what happened? You know, it's like uh, this is being planned basically right across your border. Right. 100 feet from your own country in which you allegedly have all these you know, spies, and they love to brag over there about their infiltration of Hezbollah and of uh, Hamas. And it's like, well, what the hell happened, guys? Like, you didn't get a single, in we know from the response, you didn't have an indication. Because if you would, there would have been a 10X level of the amount of defense that happened in the initial days. That music festival that turned into absolute horror and carnage was meant to, in part, celebrate, quote unquote, infinite freedom. Three miles from the Gaza border fence. Yeah. And I think it really does show you that, you know, for a long, for a while, there was this sense of like, well, this is going on over here, but we're basically just going to ignore it and pretend that it doesn't exist. And you can point to a lot of immediate term factors with the Netanyahu government specifically, which is the most extreme government Israel has ever had, which includes some figures in it who have expressed outright genocidal intent towards Palestinians, like no two ways about it. And they were very wrapped up in this push. Netanyahu's got to get out of his corruption charges. So he's pushing this attack on the independent judiciary. There was a huge nationwide protest over that. And at the same time, part of why, and this has now been fully reported out, part of why there was so little troop presence in this area where you can see things like Hamas just bulldozing yep. their you know, special high-tech border wall um, with no problem, is because those troops had been reassigned to the West Bank effectively to protect these extremist Jewish settlers mm -hmm. in that region. And so while people were being, you know, civilians being murdered and slaughtered and taken hostage, et cetera, they were on their own 
because of the way that troops had been redeployed um, because of Netanyahu's extreme coalition, effectively. So you can point to these very specific domestic factors, which is something else we want to talk to Ken Roth about. But you also just have to say, listen, you can have the biggest army, you can have the most invasive security state, you can have your good buddies, the U.S., sending you billions of dollars every year. You can have all of that. When you're trying to keep two million people locked in a cage effectively in an open-air prison indefinitely, you're never going to have real security. And so, you know, I, I grieve for the families who have lost loved ones out of a failure of their government, a failure of our government, and, you know, a, an intentional blindness from the politicians to just pretend like this issue no yeah. longer exists and to completely invisibilize, you know, the Hamas are terrorists. Like, there's no, there is no excuse for this kind of carnage on civilians. But you never see this level of concern for the Palestinian citizens who are seeing their dreams and their hopes and their aspirations quashed every day and who are routinely killed. And you, you don't see the same level of concern. I mean, that is my, my whole stance in all of this is I just want to see Israeli lives and Palestinian lives be treated with equal care and concern. So, you know, to me, that's sort of like the bottom line picture here. But there's a lot that involves the U.S. as well, as I said, um, out of the, the casualties, out of the deaths um, that occurred on the Israeli side. Some of those we now know were Americans. And there is also a high probability, I think you could say at this point, that there are some American citizens who have also been taken hostage. Secretary of State Tony Blinken um, spoke about this on the Sunday shows. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Several uh, Americans may be among the dead. We are very actively working to verify those reports. Similarly, we've seen reports about, um, about hostages, and there again, we're very actively trying to verify them uh, and uh, nail that down. Meaning that there could be some U.S. citizens who have been taken hostage as well, Mr. Secretary? Yeah, so we got the report this morning, Crystal, of the official count is that at least nine Americans were killed in Israel. Uh, unfortunately, as you said, it's very likely that figure could go higher. Um, and it's very likely there are also probably some citizens there. It's very, if anybody's ever been to Israel, there are Americans all over the place. There's, there's a lot of people who also have dual citizenship. So it is not outside the realm of possibility um, to see anything like this. And the U.S. response now so far, at least from what we can tell, can we please uh, put A-10 up on the screen in terms of the United States military? This is pretty significant. The U.S. aircraft, uh, aircraft carrier, the USS Ger Gerald R. Ford, as well as all the other ships in the carrier strike group 12, which include multiple cruisers, uh, destroyers, um, and others, are now showing and heading towards the Eastern Mediterranean, quote, in a show of support for Israel and to assist with the possible evacuation of U.S. citizens should the needs of the country arises. Multiple other governments also mobilizing military resources towards the area in case they need to evacuate their citizens. Poland, um, uh, I believe Romania, other places where large they have a large dual citizen or population that lives there. On top of that, Crystal, in terms in terms of the weapons requests, we haven't gotten specifics yet from Tel Aviv, but Washington has already begun discussions around shipping multiple more munitions to Israel, either restocking Iron Dome, ammunition. I expect a big, uh, interesting discussion to probably occur. We had a massive stockpile of ammo actually in Israel, which was meant to either be released to the Israelis should the conflict arise, or should U.S. need access to that ammo, which is forward deployed in the Middle East. Well, we drew down a huge chunk of that and sent it to Ukraine. And 
I got to say this on the Israeli side, you know, I hate to inject the Ukraine situation into this, but since we're now at least talking about response and all this, one of the reasons that Israel refused to ship a lot of munitions and arms to Ukraine is they were like, well, we might need it to defend ourselves. I think that they're probably very vindicated and invalidated um, in that decision. And it just goes to show you in terms of trying to prioritize your, uh, your own defense, you never know whenever you're gonna have to try and have access to those. So just a little bit of an underscore um, for that. But that's the b major, in terms of the US response so far, that's basically been it. Lots of calls from the US Secretary of State. He's had a call with Turkey. He had a call with, uh, I believe, with some of the other, uh, the Egyptians. Um, obviously two calls now so far between President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, but on the diplomatic side, it seems to be everybody's just sitting back and like waiting to see what the hell happens. Yeah. Especially with Gaza and with the hostage situation. So as of right now, there's been no yet invasion of Gaza. Yeah. Ground invasion is what I'm talking about. There's been no US troops or any of that been mobilized or sent as that we know. Um, the only military response on our so and so far is a symbolic show of force to the Eastern Med with the carrier strike group 12. But you have US politicians who are calling for much, much more. Um, let's go ahead and put A9 up on the screen. This is this dude, Dean Phillips, who we talked yeah. about before. He's quote unquote moderate, like problem solver, caucus type Democrat. Who He's the one you may recall who has been saying Joe Biden should receive a primary challenge. He's floated, maybe he'll do it. Um, so that's this dude. And I think he had to give up like his committee assignments or something. He mm -hmm. had some punishment. Oh, out of uh, democratic leadership because uh, daring to challenge Joe yes, Biden. Yes, that's right. But now here he is calling for war with Iran. Um, he says in response to a Wall Street Journal report that Iran helped to plot the attack on Israel over several weeks, which is what Hamas is saying. Iran is denying, and actually U.S. intelligence, as I mentioned before, says they have no evidence thus far, so we'll wait to see how all that shakes out. He says, if this reporting that Iran helped plan, support, and initiate the attack on Israel is confirmed, principled nations of the world must unite and neutralize the most repugnant, repressive, destabilizing regime in the world. Evil cannot be appeased any longer. So it sounds very much like he's calling for a war with Iran right now. Um, Senator Lindsey Graham will surprise yeah. no one who knows his history of mm -hmm. wanting a war with Iran for quite some time now, also jumping on that train and uh, pushing in that direction, beating the war drums. There is going to be a lot of pressure coming from both parties in that direction. Um, and, you know, we'll wait and see what Israel's response is, which we really are only now just getting the contours of. Sagar, talk a little bit about mm. what, what we were discussing earlier, how one of the great Israeli fears and part of what has um, led to them not going forward with a ground invasion of Ga Gaza yet is because they're concerned about the possibility of a war on two fronts. Yes, that's right. So the two-front war is uh, probably the single biggest nightmare for Israeli war planners and for what a broader ma major escalation would look like. So we already know right now there have been some rockets that were fired by Hezbollah from Lebanon into Israel after the Hamas attack that happened on Israel. So that immediately ignited fears of, well, if we invade Gaza, we could then see another front open on our border with Lebanon. They have fought wars with both at the same time, or they have fought wars with both, but the in idea of having to fight a full-scale invasion at the same time is the absolute nightmare because that would, do, obviously it would divide the number of reservists. It would also deplete the Iron Dome weapon stock munitions. And then in general, in terms of civilians getting caught in the crossfire, we have seen nightmares now in Israel, in Lebanon in the past, and in Gaza. So it would, could embroil 
Lebanon, Hezbollah, of course, has got deep allies um, with the Iranian government. I haven't even mentioned Syria, which mm -hmm. also has a significant Hezbollah situation. Who the hell knows whatever territory, you know, is there on the ground with the Golan Heights. So they could even have, in some cases, two fronts, but with multiple other tertiary ones that could open up against them. It would also open the question of Saudi Arabian involvement, Emirati, Qatari, who all maintain relations with the Hamas government, but also have been previously trying to go with Israel. Part of the uh, analysis I saw, actually from more hawkish people, is a guy, Seth Fransman. I followed him for a long time. He used to work over at the Jerusalem Post and others. He made a very interesting comment that other prime ministers would have invaded Gaza now at this point. They actually believe that Netanyahu is being much more cautious and has displayed some of this in the past. It doesn't jive with his rhetoric, I know, but I'm talking about at critical junctures in Israeli history. There was one scenario several years ago where uh, Netanyahu traded like a thousand Hamas prisoners in exchange for a single Israeli soldier who was taken captive, which is what reminded me of this hostage situation. And there was a significant domestic support for that decision because they're like, we're sick of the death. We're sick of the carnage. We just want to live in some sort of peace. Now that was a long time ago, but Netanyahu was the prime minister who was responsible for that decision. In terms of what we have right now, now, the siege, you know, escalating it to not providing electricity, food, and water, that's certainly something. But that's not a full-scale ground invasion of Gaza, right? That would lead to hundreds of deaths, absolutely, on both, if not thousands, um, on both sides of the conflict. That has not yet happened, possibly because of the hostage situation, but also troop movements inside of Israel indicate they are sending almost as much armor to the Lebanese border as they are towards Gaza. And so the idea of the two-front escalation or any of that happening, well, the only benefit, I think, for the entire situation is it could give some sort of diplomacy a chance because Israel so desperately wants to avoid that, uh, to have to fight that two-front war, which I think, there, I don't think there's any question that it would spiral into something. I'm not going to say it would draw us, you know, fully into World War III, but yeah, already we've got calls to go to war with Iran. If we have a two-front war open up between Israel and Hezbollah and full-scale bombings and all that going on with Lebanon, and, you know, Hezbollah is not Hamas. They have far more advanced missile and rocket technology, which the Iranians have provided them, they could inflict a hell of a lot more damage onto Israel than Hamas has ever done. And so that is the other reason why they have such a nightmare scenario really on their hands. Again, we don't know what is going to happen. I mean, the, the, the situation right now is still very precarious, but as long as there's no ground invasion of Gaza, the idea of a two-front war opening up, you know, remains, uh, at, at least remains lower. We also could see it's possible I, I would, it wouldn't be crazy, I think, for Israel to try and begin talks with Hezbollah or some sort of back channel with Iran or with any other places that have relations with them where they might try and broker some agreement about, hey, we won't do anything here as long as we're doing everything here. But obviously they would have to pay a price in terms of that. And I, I don't know what any of that would look like. Yeah, really Egypt don't. is really trying yeah. to reassert their sort of traditional role as um, right. uh, diplomatic go-betweens between uh, the Palestinians and Hamas in particular and Israel as other groups through the Abraham Accord and through, you know, what the Biden administration is doing as well, like the UAE have gained more prominence um, in terms of diplomatic ties with right. Israel. So there's just a lot of unanswered questions this morning. I also want to say with regard to the videos that we're playing just as a heads yeah, up. Right. We're doing the best we can to vet um, these videos. And actually, we're leaning more on quote-unquote traditional news sources than perhaps we would because there have been so many yes. 
fake, wrong, inaccurate, old videos, information that's floating around. So like I said, we're doing the best we can to sort through what is happening right now and bring you some visual elements so you can get a sense of what is happening on the ground. But I just wanna throw in there that note of caution because it's very difficult, especially now, to sort through what is what, what is fact and fiction, what is a real new video of something that happened yeah. on the ground, what is old? I even saw videos that were passing around that were from video games. I know. I know. Um, so, you know, it's it's difficult to parse through all of this. I just want to put that out there. And and also, obviously, it's difficult to watch all of this unfold, um, both on the Israeli side and now with the retaliations, the brutal retaliations on Gaza. Yeah. Let's move on. History. Uh, I thought it would be useful because I feel like every time these break out, we appear to try and talk about it in a vacuum, and you reference some right. of that. But the truth is, even in the 40-something minutes that we've already been speaking, we've only covered, what do you think, maybe 15 years of history? <laughs> so I was thinking- Not even, yeah. Well, look, and we're gonna be talking here about Gaza. We are not going back all the way to uh, the Balfour Declaration and all of that, because otherwise we'd be here for several hours. But I thought it would be at least semi-useful to give people a primer on Gaza, what exactly it is, the development, and at least its history in regards to the modern Israeli state, and then uh, very, very high level. I'm sure uh, that some of this will be not characterized to the liking of scholars and all those other people out there, so please forgive me. I genuinely am doing my best. Let's put this up there on the screen. This is the map from 1949, after the Arab-Israeli War, after the establishment of the State of Israel by the United Nations, and after the British mandate was terminated. What you can see are the 1949 armistice lines. Gaza was under Egyptian occupation after the Arab-Israeli War, critically. It remained under uh, Egyptian occupation and Egyptian administration, along with some United Nations, uh, you know, uh, councils and other things, effectively until the 1967 war. Let's go ahead and put that up there, please, on the screen. This is very critical. After the 1967 war, what otherwise is known as the Six-Day War, you could see that the Gaza Strip was taken and occupied by Israel, as, as well as the West Bank the Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. Eventually, after a series of international agreements, what has happened is that Gaza fell under a quasi-Palestinian you know, Palestinian authority type government, but multiple different international engagements that happened as to how the place would be administered. It eventually led to withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula in exchange for peacekeeping. The West Bank and Gaza then had the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, and then much of the 60s all the way up until the 2000s, that's where we saw things kind of settle. Then, this also included though, by the way, Israeli settlers and people who lived inside of Gaza. After the Oslo Accords that were signed in Oslo, uh, brokered by President Bill Clinton and the international community, they eventually agreed to, quote unquote, Israeli disengagement from the Gaza Strip, which meant Israel would no longer occupy the territory. They would no longer have a presence. They would no longer have citizens that lived inside of Gaza. 2005 is when this policy was officially implemented. They were forcibly removed, many Israeli citizens, from Gaza. And the idea was, okay, now Gaza and the West Bank, you guys hold elections, you guys administer under the Palestinian Authority. What happened then is this. Let's put this up there on the screen. Hamas ended up winning the Gaza Strip Council vote, seven out of the 10 councils in the Gaza Strip, and crushed the Fatah party of Mahmoud Abbas. 
And this party was, I guess, seen by the West, by Israel and others as more moderate and not more willing to embrace terrorism and violence, whereas Hamas, not only being an Islamist party, has written in his constitution calling for the death of the state of Israel. Let me, that, go ahead. Let, let me just interject yeah. two things there. Number one, because I think in an American context, it will help to recall that moment in American history of God, George W. Bush yes. and this idea of well, democracy in the Middle East and we're gonna you know, rebuild these nations in our image, et cetera, et cetera, Iraq war, all of that. Um, and so the idea here from the Bush administration was, oh, well, we'll have we these elections. We will force it because we're also doing Iraqi elections at this time, which comes at the Bush second inaugural, which was all about democracy promotion. And uh, so in any case, they get a result that they do not like. Yes. And um, being the U.S. can't accept nope. that there's a result that they yeah. do not like. So they actually got involved in meddling and try to, trying to back up Fatah yes. after Hamas had won the election. And a lot of people argue that our, you know, intelligence agencies getting involved in that um, intra-Palestinian conflict and effectively civil war really is what kind of led to Hamas taking over Gaza. And I also would be remiss if I didn't mention, in the spirit of blowback here, mm-hmm. that um, Hamas was actually encouraged and supported and funded by Israel in the beginning as a an attempt to be a bulwark against the PLO. Um, who they didn't like, and they were sort of more like traditional, like leftist freedom fight. Like that's how they styled themselves. There Originally. were issues there as yeah. well, yeah, and corruption, et cetera. Right. But um, they had bolstered Hamas as an attempted bulwark against PLO, and then Hamas gets traction um, in part because of the aid they're able to provide in schools and um, healthcare, et cetera, and this very extreme, you know, ideology and openly terroristic yes. ideology. So they gain a lot of support and they end up taking over Gaza in part because of the actions of both Israel and the United States. And that's where everything collapsed. So after the Bush administration refused to recognize Hamas and then they effectively disengaged, we saw a split between Gaza and the West Bank where they have different administrations. And that's when the Israeli blockade really began. So let's go ahead and put this graphic up on the screen. This is made by Al Jazeera, so it is biased towards them. Just giving people a heads up. Um, And what they say and point is that there have been four, before this point, major conflicts, I guess you could say. 2008 to 2009, there was a 23-day war um, with Hamas, eventually ended in kind of a ceasefire. 2012, there was eight days. 2014 was probably the most significant one before what's happening right now, a 50-day long war. Again, all of it focused on either violations of ceasefire, uh, in some cases on the Israeli side, in some cases with the Hamas side. Lots of rockets that were being fired and eventually again ended in a ceasefire and a tentative stalemate. But I think that the most important thing for people to understand, as we said, is that this has been going on now for so long that we've gotten far too comfortable with the situation. It was never supposed to be like this. We were supposed to have elections and we're supposed to move forward. Then Hamas won the election and we're like, no, we're no longer going to think of this as legitimate. Then is the Israeli government is like, well, we're going to put this under blockade because we've got a bunch of terrorist militants that are inside there. And if we don't, then they're just going to use the ability to have free flow of goods to smuggle weapons in, and they're going to threaten our security. And instead, what we've happened is, yeah, some weapons didn't get in, but a lot did, as we all just saw. Then 2.2 million people in one of the most densely populated areas on Earth, the third most populated, have also been living in basic squalor. And then the Egyptians have also been participating in this blockade, and they're basically cool with it at this point. The Egyptians, they don't want to deal with the Palestinians. And I think that's another place where a lot of the Arabs say, they 
they shouldn't be let off the hook. The Qataris, the Saudis, the Egyptians, the Emiratis, the Abraham Accords and all of that was basically an attempt to just move past it. They're like, we don't want to deal with this anymore. We're just going to pretend yeah, it done. doesn't exist. Right. And this is the Qataris and the Saudi. I used to live in Qatar, as people know. And they used to have little drop boxes at the mall and places like for the Palestinian cause. And I just remember looking at that and being like, you're relying on piddly little charity from people when you are one of the richest people on earth. I'm like, what are you doing? You're not doing anything. Yeah. And it's just clear they don't care. And a lot of people don't even understand, even within the Arab states, there's a lot of intra-racism between the Gulf Arabs and the, the Egyptians oh, and yeah. then how they view, they, ver they very much look at the Palestinians as like, poor, you know, I'm like dirty, and that's not my words. That's the, way, that's the way they look at them. If you've ever been to Jordan, the Jordanians definitely are not so happy with them either. Well, Jordan did accept a huge right. refugee but population. but the actual Jordanian citizens themselves, there's a lot of beef and actually resentment because a huge portion of their population is now Palestinian, and they're like, they're not Jordanian, you know? So my point is just that this is a very messy and complicated situation. It gets us to the point, though, where this has happened. And I think with that background, what's important to remember is that the last 15 years in particular have been the tinderbox through which all of these multiple conflicts have happened. The post-Hamas election, the decision by the United States, the Arab Israelis, the Arab states, and the Israelis to basically just move past and say blockade, you know, blockade and siege is the status quo. We're just never going to move on from that. Out of sight, out of mind, basically. And, and the peace advocates have always said, they're like, this is an untenable situation. It cannot hold. Um, and yeah, it's just, look, nobody is justifying Hamas here. It's so horrific what they have done to so many of these Israeli citizens. Um, and it's just one of those where I think with that broader context, people can at least understand why this one is going to be a burn and possibly could comp go on for a long time. Because we got 15 and in some cases 100 year old beefs now to settle. And where the lines are and who will accept whom? For example, Israel being like, we're gonna put under blockade. Well, the Egyptians aren't gonna let them in. And in some cases, they're like, oh, you know, Palestinian citizens should evacuate from this area. But in, in many cases, like, where are they supposed to go? Right. They literally do not have a border that they control. That's very difficult, and that will lead certainly. So I really, what I'm hoping from this is that the Arab Israel, the Arab states and the Egyptians have got to insert themselves into this process. Otherwise, we're gonna see a massive loss of human life. The Israelis are gonna go in, or uh, there's gonna be something. And if that happens, there will be tens of thousands of people who are killed. Yeah. Tens of thousands. I and mean, many Israelis will be killed too. Already, yeah. even without the ground invasion, the fact that you have this siege, complete siege, mm -hmm. cutting food, water, electricity, on 2.2 million citizens. And by the way, just as there is dissent in Israel, just as there is dissent here, there's dissent in Gaza, there's dissent in the West Bank. And Iran too. And not yeah. everyone is Hamas. We're talking children, women, families, people just trying to live. Yeah. So please remember that as we see all of this moving forward and you know all of those Israeli wars on um, Gaza, those they have an expression for that, they call it mowing the grass. Yeah which is the idea is periodically we have to come in and we have to blow up a bunch of buildings, we have to kill a bunch of people. And by the way, it's not just Hamas militants, it's also a, many civilians and children who are killed in these incursions, in part you know, because it is so densely populated. And Hamas uses it to their benefit too. Uh, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, these, there's no defense of, of the tactics that they deployed here and that they you know, frequently deploy. But thousands of Palestinians and people living in Gaza um, killed routinely 
in these incursions. And so if the thought is, okay, we're going to do it again, only more brutal, you think that's going to solve anything? Well, my hope is that the Israeli population, because again, the reason why that, that the population was willing to accept that is they thought it was working. They were like, oh, okay, our people know, the IDF knows exactly where they are. They know what they're planning. We've got them infiltrated. That's why we can go in and mow the grass. It's an effective strategy. It, it is a colossal failure. Yeah. Colossal failure at this point. Right. And, and in fact, you know, the Israelis are like, oh, well, we know exactly where they are and on which floor. Now I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm not sure I believe you. I yeah. used to. I, I honestly did because their their surveillance and infrastructure was so good or it was so vaunted, you know, here in the West and elsewhere as the premier intelligence agency in the world. Uh, you know, nothing is off limits and they will do whatever it takes to defend them. But now- after this, I mean, this is a, this is equivalent with a 9/11 intelligence failure on the CIA and yeah. the FBI. They're well, calling I, it their 9/11, their their Pearl Harbor, like combined into one, just because political. We're not talking about the death hole. We're talking about how the how it shakes the political foundation yes. of how they think about and, their entire infrastructure. And, and that's a real yeah. warning yeah. because whether you agree with that analogy or not, I think you're correct, Sagar, in the way that it has completely, in an instant, reshaped the way that Israelis are looking at the situation. Previously, they weren't even looking at the situation. No, they just didn't care. It was just yeah, completely mostly. invisible. As, again, yeah. as emblem, as you know, emblematic of that is a festival in favor of infinite freedom three miles from the mm -hmm. Gaza border, right? And so that's not an option anymore. And let's recall the way we responded to 9-11, which was horrific, and which we would have been better if we did nothing. Mm -hmm. the, the amount of death and treasure spent, American lives lost, certainly Iraqi lives lost, Afghani lives lost, you know, the decades that we spent in both of those countries destabilizing the entire region. And by the way, spurring and helping create a lot more terrorism. Um, Unfortunately. Far, you know, far beyond what we were supposedly um, fighting and combating in the region. So when you have a, a real shock to the system like this, it can go in a lot of ugly directions, which will reverberate for years and years to come. The last thing I want to say here, um, we've got put B5 up on the screen because oftentimes this is presented and I get it, like it's news, you're trying to cover yes. what's happening now, et cetera. And so it can feel like, oh, this just came out of nowhere. Like this conflict just started two days ago. Um, even in this past year, there have been a lot of warning signs because there has been real escalating violence. Um, they go through a timeline here from the Washington Post, you know, going back a year ago in January, you had an Israeli military operation in a refugee camp in Jenin, resulted in a shootout, killed nine Palestinians. Um, the next day, then you have a Palestinian gunman who goes to a synagogue in retaliation, killing seven people, including children. So you have that. Then in the spring, you had during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, Palestinian worshipers at Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is one of the most holy sites mm -hmm. um, in the, the Muslim religion, barricaded themselves inside the mosque. Israeli police stormed the site in the old city. They used stun grenades, tear gas, fired sponge-tip bullets, indiscriminately beat Muslim worshipers, including elderly people and women with batons and rifle butts. That's according to the UN Human Rights Office. Um, this has been an increasing point of tension in part but directly because of one of the uh, Netanyahu's cabinet ministers, Ben Gavir, who has been intentionally yeah. provocative with regard to Al-Aqsa and disrupting the, what has been a, a long-held status quo there. About a month later, Israel launches surprise airstrikes in Gaza targeting leaders of Islamic Jihad, another militant organization which sometimes allies with Hamas. Um, those killed three top militants and 10 others, including four women and four children. 
you had a summer that included more military raids on the city of Janine and the refugee camp there. You had more um, drone strikes actually inside of, um, of uh, the West Bank. And significantly, you had increasing violence between Palestinians and Jewish settlers. Yes, that's a big part of it. These settlements are illegal under international law. Um, part, they're part of the immediate problem here is the fact that these settlements were being protected by the IDF in lieu of protecting, you know, these border mm -hmm. towns around Gaza. So there'd been a huge redeployment towards this area. And you had uh, Israeli settlers who were rampaging through Palestinian towns, tons of violence there. And so, you know, it's not like there was nothing going on and it was all peace and quiet. And then this attack comes out of nowhere. And then you add to that the um, geopolitical situation of this potential deal, Saudi normalization with Israel that obviously they're very unhappy with. And it led to, you know, yep. absolute horror. I also want to say horror. there was there were some signs here of which the Israelis were ignoring. A good friend of mine, Trey Yanks, I used to cover the White House with him. He's now the Fox News correspondent actually in Israel. He's, he's one of the, he, he, I'm telling you, like one of those unbiased people just because he just points the camera and he'll be like, here's what's happening right now at this day. He flagged mm. this actually. He's done multiple interviews with Hamas, with Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and with the IDF. And he flagged this from August of 25th, 2023, almost a month ago a little bit over a month ago, he says, quote, we are preparing for all-out war, the deputy head of the political bureau of Hamas. They were doing, so it's not like they weren't- They were doing flat. working. Yeah, exactly. They were practicing, and this was known, they were practicing raids on Israeli villages. I mean, you know, they were pretending yeah. like they were going in. And the IDF and Mossad and Netanyahu, they all thought this was just a feint, that this was just mm -hmm. bluster. Um, they also had started, I guess there's, at times- Hamas will um, prohibit people from protesting yeah, at the border right. fence. They had allowed these protests to restart. This was also just seen as trying to get leverage to get more work permits into Israel. And so, in any case, just an unbelievable failure. And uh, it's so hard to put into words how tragic this situation is. The horror on the Israeli side and the horror on the Palestinian side and what they're, you know, this complete siege now and attacks on marketplace and mosques and apartment buildings, et cetera, which are also murdering innocent civilians. And what's so difficult about it is it's just so hard to see a way out. No, I don't see At this thing. point, and, you know, we're going to, we're about to talk to, to Ken Roth and I'll bring him in in a moment, but I think in the U.S. we continue to hold on to this fiction of like, oh, we're going to get to a two-state yeah, solution. right. Netanyahu has abandoned any pretense that they're working towards a two-state solution. He has, his whole policy has been basically like, no, this is the status quo. We're just going to keep it as is. We're going to have the blockade. We're going to occupy West Bank. We're going to continue to build out these illegal settlements, which in previous agreements they had agreed not to do while well, they continue to build it out. They've, even within the West Bank, they're like, it's not, you think of that as, oh, it's this one territory. Mm -hmm. No, it's all divided up to make room for these illegal settlements. There are certain roads you're not even allowed to drive on if you're Palestinian that are built just for the settlers. And so it's made it a real impossibility to actually have a feasible two-state solution. They're not interested in it. I don't so, think- I, I So, think, I mean, that's yeah. part of, I think the reality here is, you know, again, I just wanna be 100% clear. Nothing justifies yes. attacks on civilians. Right. Nothing we say here justifies this whatsoever. 
But if you're looking at it on the Palestinian, they've tried nonviolent. It's not like they haven't tried nonviolent protests and been met with bullets, by the way. Um, you know, BDS, if you support BDS, you're anti-Semite. So that's off the table. Um, they've tried violent resistance before, certainly, too. That hasn't worked either. And it seems like a completely untenable, unsustainable situation that is just going to certainly lead to more pain, chaos, and death moving forward. And it's hard to see a real way yeah, on it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I don't think that it is possible to see any political ceasefire settlement on this until a colossal loss of life um, is going to happen. And, and I don't say that because I want it to happen. I just don't think, I don't really see a scenario. I mean, think about, you know, post 9-11. It was politically untenable to try and pursue, like, basically nothing. The, but the only thing that was politically tenable was to basically just full-scale war. That's why the American people, even though Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11, two years later were willing to have a massive ground invasion. I would be very much doubt the ability for the Israelis not to have the same domestic thing, Also, I, although I hope not, given that they have a lot more experience with war. Same on the Palestinian side. You know, at this point, you're locked in. And then, and then all it takes is one... Uh, actual attack that, you know, one bomb that goes wrong, a couple hundred civilians are killed, and now that's your justification for fighting. And everything just keeps upping the ante over and over and over and over again. So without the direct intervention of the Arab states, the uh, Egyptians, and the United States, this is almost certain to just go and drag on now for a long time, basically as it has been. It's just a and recurring very, cycles very of violence. And yeah, also and politically, there will be, the. I don't think the Israeli populace at this, at some point, this two-state pollution thing, this two-state solution inside of Israel was always complicated in terms of how the ultra-Orthodox and the religious Jews felt about it versus how the secular Israeli Jews. But at this point, the talking point from the right has always been, well, if we give them a state, they're just gonna use the state in order to attack us. And now this is the ultimate gift mm -hmm. that Hamas has given them. Um, because they're like, see, we gave it to them, even under blockade, even under occupation, they were still able to get their stuff. So that means, you know, their their solution to this is full scale occupation, complete re uh, re re uh, reconquest to drive out Hamas, and that's basically what a counterinsurgency. That just means you have a slow burn conflict again now for a long time and no political settlement. So. I think it's going to be a long time, and I think it's a really uh, horrific human tragedy. And I think with that, you know, we've got a good guest standing by, Ken Roth. Let's get to it. Honored to be joined this morning by a friend of the show, Ken Roth, who is the former longtime executive director of Human Rights Watch and also now a visiting professor at Princeton and has a book coming out um, probably next fall. We're looking forward to that as well. Great to have you, sir. Good to see you. Nice to be back. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, first, just your initial thoughts on some of the domestic political context within Israel as um, we watch, you know, the horror of this carnage that unfolded on Israeli citizens? Well, you know, obviously this um, Hamas attack was a blatant war crime. Uh, you know, they went after civilians. You know, they went to this music festival and seemed to have massacred 250, you know, just music enjoyers. Um, they ran, went around, you know, villages and towns near Gaza and rounded up civilians and brought them back um, to Gaza as hostages. You know, these are all blatant war crimes. Um, you know, I guess people are asking, how did this happen? Because Israeli intelligence is known for being, you know, kind of well integrated into Gaza. They tend to know what's going on. And, you know, if you listen to Hamas, they, they clearly were planning this for, for months and months. Um, so I don't know why it broke down. I mean, clearly some people saw it, but the people higher up just didn't believe it. Um, you know, often the key to intelligence is not so much what are the physical things that are happening, but what are the, the intentions behind those events? 
And, you know, somebody misread the intentions. They thought that Hamas was much more interested at this stage in, you know, making money and, and running Gaza than in launching an attack of this sort. So, you know, there will have to be a, a clear inquiry. You know, what we don't really know is to what extent have the divisions within Israel contributed to this failure? Because, you know, as everybody's aware, um, Netanyahu's far-right government has been, um, you know, not only rapidly expanding settlements um, in the West Bank, but they've been attacking the independence of Israel's judiciary, you know, really undermining the checks and balances of a democracy. This has led to massive protests in Israel, really unprecedented protests, um, real divisions within the society. You know, did that contribute um, to the intelligence failure here? You know, we don't know yet. There, there will clearly be inquiries. But that was the, the backdrop that may have been a big factor here. Yeah, that's an important one. And actually, uh, one of the lead editorials, and Haaretz can put this up there on the screen just yesterday, was calling for the removal of Netanyahu. They say Netanyahu bears responsibility for this Israel-Gaza war, specifically highlighting the issues that you're talking about, not only in terms of the protests, but also deployment um, with regards to settlement. So I'm curious if you could give the audience some background that might have played there in terms of the IDF response then immediately and then how the political impact then on that decision and how Israelis could be digesting that news in real time. Well, I mean, clearly, if you look back at the last couple of months, um, I mean, not only has Israel been preoccupied by Netanyahu's assaults on Israel's democracy, um, but it has also been a, a violent period in the West Bank. You know, Netanyahu, really, in order to save his skin, in order to avoid uh, corruption charges, um, made this far-right government is the only one he could um, assemble because most of the moderates did not want to join with him while he faced these corruption charges. And, you know, they have pursued, you know, not only an active settlement building process, which itself is a, a war crime under the Fourth Geneva Convention, but they also seem to have given the green light to settlers to engage in acts of violence. There have been a series of raids um, on, on, you know, what are said to be armed groups in the West Bank. And so, you know, really the IDF has been largely focused on the West Bank. And, you know, again, I, I, you know, I can't say, you know, why they were asleep at the switch on this. You know, it was also a Saturday, the, the Jewish Sabbath. It was an important holiday. You know, the idea that Israel's enemies would use an important Jewish holiday to attack Israel is, you know, hardly unprecedented. Um, and you would think that people would have been awake to this possibility. Yes. I found it remarkable that Haaretz, which is sort of like, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of like the New York Times of Israel, um, that their lead editorial was so scathing of Netanyahu and so immediate. I mean, that was the instant reactions. They said the disaster that befell Israel was the responsibility of one person, Benjamin Netanyahu. The prime minister has prided himself on his vast political experience and irreplaceable wisdom in security matters, completely failed to identify the dangers he was consciously leading Israel into when establishing a government of annexation and dispossession. Goes on to name check some of the most extreme um, cabinet officials that he has included in his government. There have been a lot of comparisons made to 9-11, saying, you know, this is basically Israel's 9-11 in terms of the shock to the system. But there was a very different immediate reaction here to 9-11, which was rally around the flag. No one could criticize George W. Bush. I mean, that lasted for quite some time. His approval ratings ended up being sky high. It doesn't seem in the initial phases like there is that unanimity of analysis in Israel right now about the person of Netanyahu himself. 
Yeah, I mean, Netanyahu is a very controversial figure, you know, precisely because his top priority has always been to save himself. Now, Haaretz, <laughs> I mean, I think the analogy to the New York Times is accurate in that it's it's highly respected. It's also left of center. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a big Netanyahu critic, you know, the way the New York Times would have been, say, a Trump critic. So, you know, it's not that surprising that this comes from Haaretz. Um, you know, there is a rally around the flag tendency whenever, a, you know, a major attack comes like this. And clearly, the you know, the, the loss of, of civilian life has just been tragic. I, I do think, though, that there are lessons to be learned from 9-11. Because, you know, if we look back then, um, at first, you know, the U.S. government really had the moral high ground around the world. There was this, you know, outpouring of, of, of sympathy, of, of horror. And over the course of a couple of years, Bush dissipated that that sympathy he lost the moral high ground yes you know because of his highly abusive um ground war in iraq you know because of his use of torture and, and, and secret detention centers because of his you know long-term detention without trial at guantanamo and i think that you know that is a lesson that i hope the israeli government heeds that you know if it wants to maintain the moral high ground that it, at this moment it enjoys because of these attacks on on its civilians um it has to be careful how it responds and, you know, already there have been elements of the response that are troubling. You know, obviously, you know, Israel has every right under the laws of war to attack Hamas military facilities. But, you know, there's already been, you know, a mosque hit, um, a, a market hit. Um, there was a deliberate destruction of a large apartment building, which you know, has happened in prior wars. You know, I'm sure the Israelis will say, oh, there was, you know, some tiny Hamas office somewhere in there. But, you know, the end result is that there are, you know, 100 people who suddenly have lost their homes. The Israelis give, they give a warning first so people evacuate, but then this massive apartment building is destroyed. So this is the kind of thing that does lose the moral high ground. Um, just this morning, the defense minister announced that there would be a total yes. siege of Gaza. So, you know, no food, no electricity, no nothing gets in. Now, this is, you know, a, a territory of 2 million plus people that already was suffering under, you know, the perennial Israeli blockade. But in a war, warring parties have a duty to permit the free flow of humanitarian aid. And so what the defense minister is basically saying is, you know, we don't care about the laws of war. We're just going to block all aid going into Gaza. Now, you know, this is just a statement so far. We don't know if they will actually do it, but um, you know, it's a statement of an intention to commit a war crime. And this is the kind of response that will very quickly lose Israel the sympathy that it has. People are going to, yes, they'll, you know, they'll be appalled at the loss of Israeli civilian life. But very quickly, if, if this continues, they're going to be appalled at the loss of Palestinian civilian life. And, and the tables will turn very quickly. Yeah, One of the th- as yeah. part of that statement, that's our, yeah. your question, yeah. but he said, we are fighting human animals and we act accordingly. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Ken, is you've been emphasizing and long have international humanitarian law. So as we enter this next phase of the conflict, we still await any possible inva- really, you know, invasion of Gaza, a reoccupation, or a future possible two-front war breakout. Can you just lay out what that can look like, as you alluded to in terms of rights of how to strike militants, how Hamas itself is guilty of war crimes, and then what could that what that should adhere to in the future, even though it's very likely will not? Okay, well, the, the laws of war, you know, basically the Geneva Conventions and their protocols are pretty straightforward in this area. You know, you are allowed in the context of a war to shoot and try to kill the other side's combatants. You know, that's what war is about, unfortunate that it is. What you cannot do is deliberately target civilians on the other side, 
Um, you cannot indiscriminately fire into civilian areas. You cannot attack even a military target if the harm to civilians will be disproportionate. And obviously, you cannot take civilians hostages. You know, you can capture combatants, you can capture a soldier, that's okay. But you cannot seize civilians. Um, you've got to allow free flow of humanitarian aid, as I mentioned. Now, you know, these are the laws. I mean, Hamas clearly was breaching them, you know, right. extremely in, in its attack on Saturday. Um, the question is, will the Israeli government follow these rules? And, you know, often in the past they haven't, and their initial forays are, are not that encouraging. Um, this is, you know, not simply an abstract issue. The International Criminal Court, you know, the kind of the Global War Crimes Tribunal, does have jurisdiction over anything that happens in Gaza. And mm. so, you know, if there are blatant war crimes, um, the prosecutor could act. I mean, he has been slow to act on, on Israel and Palestine. He's had an open investigation now for some time. Um, this could spur him finally to act. And so, you know, everybody's got to think about, do they really want mm. an arrest warrant for them? <clears throat> the inability to travel really, you know, any place in Europe, because, you know, all of Europe is a member of the ICC. Um, you know, these are things that are, are kind of a real threat hanging over not only Hamas, but also Israeli officials. Do you really think it's a real threat, though? Because, I mean, the whole reason they could be so brazen in pre-announcing a war crime is because it's they've gotten away with it before. I mean, it would not be. And, I mean, the settlements are illegal. I mean, there's there's war crimes committed from the Israeli side all the time. And not only is there no accountability in terms of international criminal court, but there's no accountability with regard to, you know, their greatest friend, the United States of America, which continues to do what they want and send them, you know, all the aid and condition it on absolutely nothing. So isn't it the- right. I mean, yeah, the and, U.S. And, has been horrible in this regard, you know? And, and so do you actually think that there could be something that's different this time? Because I'll say on the other side of things, you know, we talked about the New York Times of Israel, the New York Times of the New York Times actually has a little bit of a different tone this time than in previous- um, Israeli wars on Gaza and um, Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. You're seeing even some dissident voices on CNN, some Palestinian voices on CNN. You see a little more dissent within the Democratic caucus. So do you think there could be a change in perception and coverage this time that actually may change the outcome here? Yeah. Well, I mean, let me just first, in terms of the broader political background that you're alluding to, there has been a change in, I think, the tone of the debate in the United States a growing recognition that the Israeli government has been imposing apartheid on the occupied territory, um, a growing, you know, real dislike for the far-right government that Netanyahu is leading. So, you know, it has been possible in the U.S. political context, um, certainly in the broader public, maybe less so for the moment in Congress, but it's changing, um, to, to speak, you know, much more critically about Israel. Now, the other interesting development, I mean, you talk about how, you know, Israel's committed these war crimes in the past and has gotten away with that. And that's, you know, completely true. I mean, the U.S. basically protects it. Um, you may recall that when the International Criminal Court prosecuted the prior one, Fatou Ben Souda, announced that she was opening an investigation into Palestine because Palestine is the member of the court. So, you know, looking at crimes committed on the territory of Palestine, um, Trump imposed sanctions on the prosecutor and her deputy, you know, an outrageous interference with the independence of this judicial institution. Now, yeah. you know, Biden, his credit, lifted those sanctions. But more interestingly, um, the U.S. government traditionally has opposed the court having jurisdiction simply because a crime is committed on the territory of a member of the court. They said it should only go after people whose governments have joined the court. Mm -hmm. um, nobody else believes that, but that's the U.S. position. 
But the U.S. has now changed that position in Ukraine because Ukraine has given the court jurisdiction. Um, Russia is not a member. And the U.S., even Biden himself, have applauded the charges against Putin. So in essence, Mm -hmm. at least in that context, they have thrown away the U.S. objection to territorial jurisdiction. That's the only reason to object to the court acting on crimes committed in Palestinian territory. So, you know, unless the U.S. can be completely, you know, unprincipled and say it's okay in Ukraine but not okay in Gaza, um, you know, suddenly the court will have the latitude to act in a way that never had before. I wouldn't put it past them, but you are correct. Uh, We appreciate you joining us, uh, Mr. Roth. You're always such a great person to talk to, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Good seeing you. At the same time, we have some major implications for U.S. policy, both on the presidential side and on the House Speaker side. Don't forget, the House Speakership remains completely empty. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. The Israel war has now added major urgency to the U.S. Republican House Speaker crisis because as long as there's no speaker, nothing can happen on the floor of the House of Representatives. We've narrowed it down to two candidates, Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. Both have basically announced like unequivocal aid for Israel. But the main thing is that whenever it comes to the speakership is that many who have called for more U.S. military aid to Israel, obviously that cannot pass if there is no speaker. So that is now a major incentive, I guess, for a lot of Republicans in order to wrap this up earlier. And just so people remember, For how this all works, there will be a secret meeting, a secret ballot or whatever, tonight, another meeting on Tuesday, and then a vote is scheduled for the speaker on Wednesday. There is no indication that that will actually happen, that in terms of it will actually get resolved. Um, In terms of the two major candidates, like we said, things have basically been narrowed down, Crystal, to uh, Jim Jordan and to Steve Scalise. But it is interesting because prior to this, the only major international question was Ukraine aid. Jim Jordan specifically came out against aid to Ukraine. Steve Scalise has been silent on aid to Ukraine. But now, Israel being the preeminent international issue here in Washington, Obviously, there's far more of bipartisan consensus on that one um, in terms of in Congress. And uh, the thing is, though, is that that will then add major urgency to some of the possible holdouts, people like Nancy Mace, Matt Gates, and others, in order to uh, actually have a speedy election. That said, and I, I know, but I still have had, we still have to follow, obviously, the political news. Nancy Mace and Matt Gates and many others have come out in support of Jim Jordan, well, some of these holdouts. So that's pretty Donald important. And Donald Trump. And Donald Trump. Has backed Jim Jordan. Right. Now, I'm curious from your perspective, if Trump's endorsement of Jordan is 100% a good thing, or um, whether there is some complications with that. Because you do have some moderate Republicans in particular who were just elected in yeah. New York in Joe Biden districts who are, you know, doing their best to try to distance themselves from the more extreme ranks of the party and from Donald Trump himself. So what do you think about that? I think uh, I'd rather have it than not, um, because especially because the people who all voted uh, to oust Kevin McCarthy, yeah, all of those people are, you know, disciples of Trump. Except for Nancy Mace, who, I guess, as Kevin said, uh, what did he say? He's like, well, she's in a league of her own. That's a whole other story. And I think he's correct. But you're correct. Yeah, well, she just seems like one. She, she's got her yeah. finger in the, she's very ambitious, finger in the wind, going where out. Because she used to some style herself her as like a moderate, yeah. you know. Now she's styling herself as some like dissident Matt Gates type, whatever. Anyway, let's put her to the side. Yes. There are other New York Republicans, as you said, guys like Mike Lawler and others who they would not necessarily vote somebody for Trump. But- I think what the Republicans will do and the Israel situation actually adds to this, if they can try and hammer this all out behind doors, and also 
with some demands and other things made by Matt Gates, where he basically said, I'll give up the entire motion to vacate if you guys would agree to this legislation that Ro Khanna has introduced about term limits, about stock trading bans, and others. There could be some interesting horse trading behind the scenes. Obviously, we're massively supportive of that, and we will. Oh, yeah. this show is all about, mostly about Israel and its impact, but we'll get to that later in the week, so please don't worry, especially whenever we do have a speaker election. What I think that adds the complication to this is that because you only need seven or eight, as you said, you may be able to get the seven or eight holdouts on the anti-McCarthy side, but now you might have seven or eight holdouts on the Steve Scalise side who may not agree to have Jim Jordan. I would though think that the amount of pressure that the Israel situation is putting on Congress, there is much more of a at like a, a push from party leaders, from colleagues to fold nearly immediately. So whoever does win that first ballot, I think they're gonna have a major advantage because they're gonna be like, look guys, we gotta coalesce and we gotta get this yeah. done. That's what I think. That That's this situation really does speed up, I think, the speaker election. That's my read of the situation yeah. as well. And moderates, quote unquote moderates, would be the first to like cave to that kind of pressure exactly. too. And they tend right. to be the, the most overtly uh, pro-Israel as well. So um, I, that's my read of the situation, too. There is an interesting dynamic here. So, you know, we've been saying and everybody's been saying, like, oh, you can't do anything in the House until you have an official speaker. Yeah. So the speaker pro tem really can't do anything except for hold votes to get a speaker. That's all you can do until you actually have a speaker. Well, now that there's a question of support for Israel and Israeli aid, now they're like, Maybe it's a little different than what we were saying before. Put this up on the screen from Axios. They say Scoop House members tee up pro-Israel resolution. And part of the idea here with this, it's an APAC written resolution, just basically to say we stand with Israel and they have a right to self-defense or whatever it says. Um, basically, the idea is to push a new precedent of what the speaker pro tem can actually do and can actually accomplish. They quote this Georgetown law professor, uh, Josh Chaffetz, who says if they pass a resolution, it does then create a precedent that they can do substantive business. Um, another individual was director of structural democracy at the Bipartisan Policy Center said, there's probably very little, if any, actual restriction on what a majority of the House could do right now. So that's another avenue is that they continue to push off the you know re resolution of who's actually going to be Speaker of the House, but they just decide they can do whatever they want Yes. anyway in the meantime. Well, they can always find a way, can't they, Crystal? Yeah, it's when they want to, it's amazing how quickly they're able to act. The other funny constitutional questions are whether Patrick McHenry, the speaker pro temper, is even allowed to get an intelligence briefing. That's been a big brouhaha here yeah. in Washington. Can he be briefed? Can he not be briefed? He's the interim speaker, you know, in the meantime. But the major thing I think you need to know is that this will accelerate the process. It will put a lot of pressure, especially because they want to be able to pass not necessarily just a military package, although I do think that will come with time, but a resolution or something like that expressing support for the Israeli people. The government itself wants to be able to ha have some nimble action, and without a speaker, you quite literally can't do anything in Congress, pass any legislation. I would also remind everyone, there are multiple other big bills that still need to pass. The NDAA, the actual like funding, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act for the Pentagon, Almost certainly that's going to include a rider, quote unquote, which is like an addition for Ukraine and for Israel. What will the politics like that look like? How will the Israel-Ukraine debate be affected? It could be linked together. It could be split apart. They could argue we need to favor one over the other. I'll enjoy watching um, that one fight out, that yeah. one play out in yeah, the Republican Party. That's one yeah. potential direction is they tie additional Ukraine aid and additional Israel aid together. 
and a lot of the people who are opposed to Ukraine aid mm -hmm. are very much in favor of Israel aid. Right. So that could be one tool that they use to try to get the next round of Ukrainian aid through the House. We'll see how this all shakes out. Still a lot of questions there Absolutely. about how this is going to move forward, but certainly puts a lot of pressure and changes a lot of political dynamics. That is the major too. thing that you need to know about that. Now, in terms of the uh, actual political response, there has been uh, a major war now breaking out within the GOP about the, how the response should be. Nikki Haley obviously taking up the neocon mantle and basically calling for war with Iran as a result of this and a complete flattening of Gaza. Here's what she had to say. But let's step back because I want the American people to kind of take this in for a second. Just imagine that here the Israelis woke up and communities were bombarded, families were murdered, women and children were taken hostage, dragged through the streets, the elderly were taken. All of this has happened in front of everyone on top of thousands of rockets that hit Israel. This should be personal for every woman and man in America. Why? Because when they did this, when they did this surprise attack, when they took these hostages, when they murdered these families, they were celebrating. And what were they celebrating? They were saying death to Israel, death to America. This is not just an attack on Israel. This is an attack on America because they hate us just as much. America can never be so arrogant to think we don't need friends, just like we needed them on 9-11. That's why Ukraine needs us when Russia's doing this. That's why Israel needs us when Hamas and Iran are doing this. And I'll say this to, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, finish them finish them. Hamas did this. You know Iran's behind it. Finish them. They should have hell to pay for what they've just done. Calling for war with Hamas, calling for war with Iran, saying that this is an attack on America. Former Vice President Mike Pence taking shot at his old running mate, Donald Trump, as well as Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis also in reaction. Let's take a listen. Well, I am, but let me begin at where, where we ought to start. I mean, that disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan has emboldened the enemies of freedom around the world. And now war is raging uh, in Eastern Europe. And, and President Joe Biden's kowtowing for the last two and a half years to the mullahs in Iran, lifting sanctions, begging them to get back in the Iran nuclear deal, and then uh, paying $6 billion in a ransom uh, for hostages, I, I think set the conditions uh, for this unprecedented terrorist attack uh, by Hamas against Israel. But I also believe this is what happens when we have leading voices like Donald Trump, Vivek Ramswamy, and Ron DeSantis signaling retreat from America's role as leader of the free world. I, look, uh, that what happened in Ukraine was an unprovoked invasion by Russia. What happened this weekend was an unprovoked invasion by Hamas uh, into Israel. Uh, and I really believe now more than ever, uh, both uh, the debate within the Republican Party and the debate within America is whether or not we're, we're going to once again stand without apology as the leader of the free world, as the arsenal of democracy. This is, uh, it's 2005, if I if I listen to these people. Well, seriously, how yeah. many wars do these people want to get in? Yeah, I, I know. It's Wait, should we just add China to the list while we're at it, just for fun? I mean, a lot of I, people, folks at Raytheon very happy right now. I am in the Bridge Colby camp. I am personally doubtful we could win a single war, let alone like five wars, as a result of the current state of the U.S. military. One of the reasons I'm so against um, aid to Ukraine. And they, yeah, these, they, they, to them, there's the limitless 
number and the checkbook for what can happen. And also that there's no idea that you have to prioritize certain things that actually advocate and work for your national interest. And uh, Nikki Haley, this is an attack on America, begging Prime Minister Netanyahu to basically to strike Iran. I mean, Iran is not some piddly little country. This is a massive country, huge population, huge army. I'm not saying that they're, you know, like, a, I'm not saying they're like a great power, but it's not a joke. And there's a reason why we have not undertaken strikes on Iran. And one, uh, there's a reason why U.S. military planners consider it a nightmare scenario because it has a neighbor with Iraq. They have a proven military capability with the IRGC and others. And it would just cause even more chaos and destabilization in the region. Same with Mike Pence, as you're saying, he's like, to them, everything stems back to Ukraine and then to Afghanistan. How about this? The world is messy and not everything is interconnected. I hear this from the Ukraine first people all the time too. They're like, well, we gotta support Ukraine because that means we gotta support Taiwan. I'm like, well, hold on a second. They're actually completely disparate situations with different actors and different histories. Same thing here. It's like, if this had happened in 2005, they would have been like, oh, this is a result of 9-11. They always have to try and tie it to something else that's bigger and going on to try and justify even more military conflict and others. And it's like, okay, well, what has that policy gotten us? It ain't winning. And yeah. it certainly ain't, it certainly is not, you know, peace or prosperity for them or for us as a result of this. So look, I'm happy that these voices are not prevailing right now in the Republican Party, at least right now well, with the actual voters. But this is the Ukraine. actual think in Washington. Well, and yeah. and let's be clear, like there isn't actually any dissent on Israel within the Republican Party. Sure, absolutely. Like Trump was incredibly hawkish, did everything that, you know, Israel wanted him to do, um, incredibly hawkish towards Iran, uh, took us out of the Iran nuclear deal, assassinated Qasem Soleimani, all of these things, right? So it's not like they're trying to paint this picture like there's some dissent here when there really isn't. The only person who was a little bit different on Israel who quickly like backtracked and tried to pretend like he wasn't actually different on Israel was Vivek Ramaswamy, mm -hmm. yeah. um, who made some comments about how he would like in the fullness of time to not be supporting them militarily. Um, here he is with Sean Hannity getting questioned on those comments after Nikki Haley specifically attacked him over it. Let's take a listen. You know, you said aid to Israel, our number one ally, only democracy in the region should end in 2028 uh, and that they should be integrated That's with false. their neighbors. I have an exact quote. You want me to read it? That's actually, yeah, you, I, I can tell you the exact quote. What I said is it would be a mark of success if we ever got to a point in our relationship with Israel, if Israel never needed the United States' aid. And Sean, you know how politics is played. A lot of the other professional politicians who have been threatened by my rise have used that statement to say that I would cut off aid to Israel. That's not correct. So in any case, he's like backtracking and it just shows you how sensitive this issue is, yep. how influential, um, you know, people for whom this is like their number one issue are within the Republican Party, also within the Democratic Party. You've only very recently had a few voices in the Democratic Party that are even a little bit um, dissident on this issue and also want to talk about Palestinian lives as well and the, you know, unconscionable blockade and occupation apartheid conditions that have been imposed on these people for, for years and years now. Um, but within the Republican Party, you know, there's basically only one position that you can take on this issue and it's being extraordinarily hawkish. Well, a lot of it actually, it's interesting. You could think about it a little bit like the pro-life issue. Uh, some of the most vehement and like, 
extreme supporters of Israel are evangelical Christians. Uh, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I cannot even attempt to explain it, but it has something to do with the end of days and why the state of Israel needs to exist and the Christian tie-ins. There's also been actually a very heavy attempt in Israel by the Israeli government to cultivate a lot yeah. of these people. They help fund it's a lot of trips uh, back and forth. Yeah, if you're ever on a flight to Israel, it's funny, half the people on the plane will be evangelical Christians. The other half will be Jews. Uh, and a lot of them are coming to visit some of the holy sites and Christ and a lot of it is funded by both churches, nonprofits, and these other organizations which have now existed for a long time. They put an immense amount of pressure, an immense amount of pressure on GOP lawmakers. You also I think have the not old 9-11 tie-in. It's very much a, you know, a lot of people like to have black and white thinking. It takes yeah. a long time to actually separate that, to think about it. And most people haven't been over there or they just look at the news and they're like, well, you know, one is uh, uh, allied with our enemies and one always has our back. So they're like, okay, this is a simple equation. So that's how a lot of American voters are gonna think about it. I mean, I think there's a reason that the entire, all opposition to Israel is predominantly in the US, a elite left project. And it's because it comes from the university and academia class because they have more, of an interest, obviously they have probably more sympathies to like the ideas around human rights and all of that, but they have more of a like awareness generally of what's going on. So I think that's There's why it's There's a difficult. huge age divide here That's too. true, yeah, oh yeah, Huge age divide, and the politics on this, I mean that might be, if you look at the numbers, um, one of the biggest generational gaps mm -hmm. on the Democratic Party is between older folks and younger folks in terms Good of point. the prism with which they view this conflict. And we were talking, you know, I mean, in some ways, it feels so depressing, the cycle of violence, um, the, you know, just knowledge that there's no, there's got, not going to be a simple, easy, straightforward solution. There just can't be at this point after all of these decades of absolute horror. But you do see, even in the media coverage, you see, you know, different perspectives you never would have seen before, even like the New York Times and CNN with voices you never would have heard before, you know, actually talking to Palestinians in addition to the Israelis who, you know, are, are suffering and, and grieving right now. So you do see some, partly this is um, a, a result directly of Netanyahu becoming very partisan during the Obama era. Yes. And really throwing in with Republicans and actively trying to thwart Obama's reelection. And that has created a very different political dynamic within the Democratic Party than used to exist. And I'm talking not at the elite level, where there's still mostly unanimity, like I said, with a few. You've got Rashida Tlaib, who is actually mm -hmm. Palestinian-American, who is being blocked, by the way, from visiting her grandma in Palestine um, by the Israeli government. So you have a few voice, different voices on the Democratic side, but there's also been an overwhelming campaign to try to defeat in primaries anyone who would have a different view on how to approach this conflict whatsoever. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I remember saying it at the time, I've said it many times here on the show, it's probably the single biggest mistake Bibi ever made in terms of US political support. He, drew in, he aligned himself with an opposition party against the sitting president of the US, which allowed the Obama administration to say, look at this man coming to my soil to speak out against my policy in my Congress. You know, having that, 
dramatically opened the Overton window because when you were allowed to criticize Bibi, then you were allowed to criticize Israeli policy. Yeah. That led to some, I, there was some moment at the end of the Obama administration where they even allowed some UN Security Council resolutions to pass that they never would have allowed to uh, happen in the past. Uh, even the Biden administration, I mean, they've mostly been 100% pro-Israel. The Israelis wouldn't say so, but not a huge departure yeah. from previous policy. But even they've had a few, There's some know. friction between, like exactly. personal There's friction, friction between, right. ben, between Netanyahu and Biden, but it hasn't yeah. really amounted to different policy. I pulled up the numbers just to give people a sense of how this is becoming, uh, there's starting to be a more partisan valence to this. In 2023, Gallup asked, in the Middle East situation, are your sympathies more with the Israelis or more with the Palestinians? Obviously, this is before the current situation and atrocities that were just committed. For Democrats, for the first time ever, more people said their sympathies were with Palestinians than Israelis. 49% of Democrats said Palestinians, 38% said Israelis, and 13% um, said neither or no opinion. Independents, um, they also increased their level of support with Palestinians, but they still uh, overall have more sympathy towards Israelis. It's 49% sympathy towards Israelis, 32% Palestinians, 19% neither, both or no opinion. With Republicans, very different landscape. 78% say their sympathies lie predominantly with Israelis. Only 11% say they're more sympathetic towards Palestinians. So, you know, that is a very uh, new phenomenon. If you look back at, uh, you look back at like 2010, you had 60% of Democrats saying their sympathies were more with Israelis. Um, so in only 13% saying that their sympathies were more with Palestinians. So there's been a, you know, there's been a really dramatic shift in terms of the level of, the the level of, I guess, support for Palestinian statehood and the complexity with the, which the situation is viewed yeah. within the Democratic Party. And I do think a lot of that goes back to Netanyahu right. making it very partisan. Now we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Trita Parsi. He is executive vice president of the Quincy Institute and a longtime friend of the show. Great to see you, sir. Good to see you, sir. Good to be back with you guys. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of questions for you about the sort of geopolitical fallout here, the context within which these attacks occurred. Um, but first, I wanted to ask you about this report from The Wall Street Journal. Let's put this up on the screen, guys. This is the second piece here. Um, they say that Iran helped plot the attack on Israel over several weeks. The Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps gave the final go-ahead last Monday in Beirut. Now, what's really interesting here is this is actually according to senior members of Hamas and Hezbollah. However, U.S. officials made it very clear they had not seen any evidence of Tehran's involvement. And now you also have Israeli officials being very uh, clear and saying they have not seen evidence of Iranian involvement here. So I wonder what your reaction is to the story and why this is significant and people should care. Well, it's very significant because if you take the story at face value, it, it was really pushing the United States towards getting involved in a larger war in the region. Because if the Iranians were involved in that operational sense, uh, you would have significant calls uh, on the U.S. side for actions against Iran. However, the story, in my view, is not particularly credible. As you mentioned, this is not a position shared by the U.S. government. It's also not shared by the Israeli government with the IDF uh, spokesperson coming out and saying that they don't see evidence for it, which is quite a statement coming from the Israelis who otherwise are quite keen on pointing out Iran's involvement in various things. But also because I think the the story itself, I find uh, 
really difficult to digest. So for instance, they say that there's been bi-weekly meetings in, since August in Beirut, which is a place in which the Israelis have excellent intelligence, of course, mm. between senior leaders of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, Hezbollah, uh, and Iran, including on two occasions, the Iranian foreign minister attending. I mean, these are the very same people the Israeli intelligence would keep a very, very close eye on. How could they have bi-weekly meetings since August about this issue, planning it, and the Israelis never finding out? It just sounds to me um, quite difficult to believe. So I think there's a lot of elements of this that raises question marks as to the accuracy of this story. On top of that, the former boss of one of the reporters byline in that story has come out and said that he fired her from her earlier position in Reuters for inventing stories. So I think we should deal it with uh, a bit of grain of salt and really investigate further. Having said that, let me also say this. I think it is quite clear that the Iranians have been involved in arming and training Hamas. That is different from them being involved operationally in this attack, green lighting attack. Those are very, very different things. Moreover, we should also be clear that Tehran probably wants the world to believe that they had a bigger role in this than what they actually did. Because from their perspective, this gives them credibility amongst the Arab streets in the region, which is their audience. Their audience is not Europe or the United States. So even when they have not been involved in things, they like the idea that uh, uh, the world thinks they were involved because it gives them an edge in their competition with Saudi Arabia and other governments in the region by them claiming to stand and and raising the Palestinian flag. Wow. Uh, Very important context, I think, um, on that story. We also, though, have seen um, elements of the former U.S. officials and others beginning to blame Iran um, for the attack, possibly setting up for possible U.S. involvement. Here's the former director of national intelligence saying that, and I want to get your reaction. My reaction, Kaylee, is um, as it has been from day one, those words ring hollow from the Biden administration. They're disingenuous um, at best. Look, it's it's not even just this $6 billion, uh, which, which clearly is going to further enrich uh, Iran. It's closer to $60 billion. If you look at what, what the Biden administration has done to help this Islamic uh, uh, terrorist regime in Iran by uh, stop enforcing sanctions, by lifting restrictions, by allowing Iranian oil to uh, increase by 650% over the last two years, from 400,000 Uh, barrels of oil a day to three uh, million barrels of oil a day. All of this has uh, strengthened an Iranian regime that, you know, Kaylee, we left um, weaker and poorer than it had been in the last 20 years. And instead, they've largely been funded by uh, the Biden administration's actions and allowing them to uh, strengthen their position and to create this kind of mayhem. I don't think it's unfair Kaylee, to say that, you know, uh, Iran funded Hamas here, but the Biden administration helped fund uh, Iran. This is the uh, basically coalescing uh, position of a lot of the Republican Party. So I'm curious, uh, just fact from fiction, what do you make of that? Well, there's there's quite a lot of fiction there. But I think, first of all, the larger context here is that, unfortunately, these are really serious issues. 
And in Washington right now, we're turning everything into a political football. Mm-hmm. This is an attempt to blame everything on the Biden administration. You guys know me. I've been on this show many times. Yes. I have plenty of critiques of the Biden administration. And I do so today as well in, in part of handling this and, and trying to push for a Saudi-Israeli normalization deal, which I think, frankly, has contributed to some of the uh, um, uh, violence that we're seeing mm-hmm. right now. But this is just filled with a lot of fiction. First of all, the $6 billion sits in a bank in Qatar. Uh, essentially, the United States decides what type of food and medicine the Iranians can buy. It's actually a very humiliating deal in the sense that the Iranians cannot even spend their money as they want to, but they have to get approval from the United States to do so. In terms of 3 million barrels uh, uh, of oil a day, I, I've never heard that number. I've heard something up to two. And it's absolutely true that as a result of an effort to de-escalate, the Biden administration, I don't think, has been uh, implementing uh, some of Trump's sanctions as harshly as Trump was. But it's also in the context of the Ukraine war in which pursuing the implementation of that would further increase oil prices at a time when the Biden administration actually has an interest in in lowering the oil prices uh, because of the impact it will have on the U.S. economy. And this is one of those things that I think the Trump administration didn't take into account in the same way because it was partly in a different geopolitical context. The idea then to go all the way of saying that, you know, the Biden administration is funding Iran, which then is funding Hamas, is is really a, a masterful way of connecting dots that doesn't exist in order to score a political point here in Washington, but that unfortunately can have devastating geopolitical effects, not only in the region, but for the United States itself, because this is these kind of narratives that can push the United States wrongfully into a conflict that the U.S. should not be involved in. Yeah, and we've already seen uh, Dean Phillips, who's a Democratic congressman, effectively calling for war with Iran and Lindsey Graham re-upping his, uh, you know, practical constant desire for war with Iran. So these are very real concerns right now. Um, And Dr. Parsi, part of why we wanted to have you on is because even when the the Abraham Accords were, you know, very popular and they had a lot of traction within Washington, D.C., you were raising some alarms about what they left out and some of the shortcomings of them. And now, as you alluded to, there's also this attempt from the Biden administration. Abraham Accords were under the Trump administration, under the Biden administration. You now have a similarly veined attempt to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel that effectively ignored and invisibilized uh, what was going on here in Palestine. Can you take us through those pieces and why you said that the Saudi normalization in particular may have contributed to the timing of these attacks? Absolutely. So as you remember, I was on the show and I wrote about this when the Abrams Accord first came out and there was this belief that this is some sort of a peace deal, uh, even though Saudi, uh, uh, the UAE and Israel had never been at war. The very core of this agreement was the belief that the Palestinian issue no longer mattered and that one could then devise a deal that would move beyond the Palestinian issue. This is specific terminology that was used by Jared Kushner at the time. And this was partly born out of the reality that after the Uh, the Arab Spring, the Palestinian issue, wasn't as potent of a force in the Arab world as it had been earlier uh, prior to the Arab Spring. But to believe that that was a permanent state and a permanent shift was a huge mistake. And by essentially moving forward, 
uh, with the Europeans forgetting the Palestinians, the United States long having forgotten the Palestinians, and now some Arab countries forgetting the Palestinians. And the belief was created that the world had forgotten the Palestinians. But there was one element that had not forgotten the Palestinians. That was the Palestinians. They still believed themselves. They still were suffering under occupation. They were still suffering from a tremendous and increasingly intensified repression. And leaving them with that, uh, in that situation in which essentially a narrative was created amongst the Palestinians, that negotiations and peace process had actually brought them to a worse position um, uh, over the course of the last 30 years, just mm. objectively dramatically increased the likelihood that at some point, uh, their struggle would shift towards a much, much more militant and, and violent um, uh, uh, resistance than what yeah. we had seen during the Oslo process. This is not to condone it. This is not to justify it. This is just to say this is a reality. Some of us called it out before this happened. Um, and I think it's a reminder to us, particularly in the context of how the narrative on Ukraine has developed in the United States, that if there is this belief that, of course, the Ukrainians have to have agency, um, uh, etc. to at the same time deprive the Palestinians of any of such uh, agency, then we should not be surprised if they then try to uh, manifest that agency in a completely different way. Again, this is not to justify yes, it, but this is part of the reason why uh, a lot of people in the region as well as elsewhere were very concerned about this because essentially it sought to uh, uninvent um, or it's not the wrong way, but essentially uh, it, it sought to create a, a scenario in which the Palestinians were permanently irrelevant. And that was a dramatically dangerous bet that is now backfiring in a horrific way. My last thing for you, sir, is about uh, the idea of a possibility that in Israel, where they're very afraid of a two-front war of Hezbollah and then potential embroilment with Iran, how should people, what context can you give with them about what that might look like and what the trigger points would be for a broader conflict that we would look like outside of the Gaza Strip? I think, first of all, that's an absolutely um, uh, to-the-point question. It's a very important question. I think it's part of the reason why the Israelis themselves are not going out there and saying that they don't see Iran's operational involvement in this. Because if they were to go out and say that and, and incentivize Hezbollah to actually get into the fight, then Israel would be facing a two-front war. Moreover, the fact that the Hezbollah has not been part of this war so far is further indication that this probably was not something that the Iranians were involved in designing. Because if they wanted to do something to really go after the Israelis, they would probably have done it uh, in a manner that was um, uh, more um, detrimental to the Israelis by creating that two-front war. But if that were to happen, it would be a devastating situation for the Israelis. Both Hamas and Hezbollah are much better armed. There's been this false belief that Israel's technological superiority creates a permanent uh, imbalance between the two sides. And as a result, that they, they simply could manage permanent occupation because these Palestinians could not do anything about it. We've now seen that the Palestinians have managed to catch up technologically and really surprise not just the Israeli military, but also the Israeli intelligence services. Mm -hmm. um, so in that context, this is something that the Israelis should be very worried about. Well, Dr. Parsi, it is always so great to have all of your um, thoughts and, and well-considered commentary here as we sort through a very complex situation. Thank you so much for joining us as always. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the last thing I will say is uh, I'm just, I think we should all gird ourselves for this is going to be a long conflict. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die. 
I think uh, a lot of things will be less safe. We're going to do our best to sift through a lot of this information. It's very, very difficult. We're not on the ground in Israel. Um, even those who are on the ground, we don't know what they're able to show us. You know, they can only give us a small picture. We're doing our best to verify um, all of the information. And, you know, I just hope that uh, something can actually come, uh, something can possibly prevent a tremendous loss of life. I've got personal friends. One of my best friends who was in high school was Palestinian. He was one of those people who wouldn't even say the name Israel. One of my childhood best friends is Israeli currently, you know, um, uh, who served in the IDF. I've known some people on a human level on both sides of this, which it's both difficult, but I also, I think, uh, was a blessing to be able to look at it, especially when stuff like this happens and to try and be able to help everybody sort through all this. I know it's very, very difficult. I also know there's a lot of people out there for this is such an emotional issue. And look, we're doing our best. We're just, that's all we can tell you. We are absolutely trying to sift through all of this, give you our perspective. None of this is from a place of malice. And if you take offense, um, that's okay, because we're still gonna be here and we'll still be here the next day. Yeah, if there was one thing I could say, it's to just implore people to value all life equally to have as much care and concern for Palestinian life as we see whatever the Israeli response has been, which we're already getting a taste of with this complete siege, with calling Palestinians animals, to have as much care and concern for innocent Palestinian life as you do for innocent Israeli life. And um, there was a quote, this was actually surprisingly in the New York Times, Hmm. from a woman who's a Palestinian lawyer who lives in Israel. And she said, if there's one lesson of this, it is not that this was a security failure. It was a failure on the part of the world to address the conflict. Every day is violent. We wake up to violence. We go to bed to violence against Palestinians. Again, nothing justifies the slaughter of innocent civilians, including women and children. Not when it's done by Hamas and not when it is done by Israel but you will never have true peace and security so long as you have such oppression and so long as you're trying to keep millions of people locked in a cage, effectively, in an open-air prison, um, and their dreams and hopes and aspirations crushed. You have the biggest military in the world, the most intrusive surveillance state in the world. You have the you know biggest, baddest friends in the United States in the world, but there is no substitute for a real, lasting, and just peace. And I hope that in some way we can move towards those ends eventually. I hope so too. Uh, we're gonna keep everybody updated all throughout the week. You can expect more things uh, like this. We're gonna do our best and we'll see you all tomorrow. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.